Let's turn our Bibles this morning uh, to Genesis 33. We'll come back to our uh, Jeremiah and Matthew readings next week, but let's go to Genesis chapter number 33. Uh, You should also have that sermon notes page that has a little outline in the back, and the front has a little summary and uh, the text itself, if you'd like to kind of see it all in one place, and especially for kids to be able to follow along. Uh, if I have us flip to some other passages, they can, all, they can just see it there quickly. But Genesis 33, we've been in Genesis uh, for quite a while and uh, making our way through it here in the morning service. And uh, we have looked at the story, of course, of creation and the fall, uh, God's uh, amazing grace in saving Noah and his family through the flood while judging the world for its unbelief and its ungodliness. Uh, the Lord chose Abram, Abraham, uh, to be the father of a new nation through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Uh, he gave him a son, Isaac, and it was through Isaac, not Ishmael, that uh, that line of the promise was to continue. And now we're in the story of Jacob. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Uh, Isaac, uh, this is Isaac's son, uh, Abraham's grandson. Uh, he has, uh, he, we've seen uh, he and his uh, twin brother Esau uh, have had a rivalry since they've been in the womb. Uh, and Jacob grabbed hold of uh, Esau's heel because Esau was the first out, uh, and Jacob grabbed hold of him, and uh, his, name is, his name literally is a heel grabber, and uh, uh, he, he, uh, Esau was a, sort of a manly man, right? Uh, sort of the John Wayne figure of the Bible. Um, hairy, sort of red hair, uh, rough. Uh, he was a hunter, uh, and so, of course, uh, he was Isaac's favorite, right? Firstborn son who's, you know, this sort of man. He's, he's the favorite. And, uh, and, and, and Jacob, sort of, a, sort of a mama's boy, and uh, he's there in the proverbial kitchen making food. And while Esau's out uh, on the hunt, uh, 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 Jacob and his mom uh, plot and hatch this plot uh, to, to steal the birthright, to steal the blessing uh, from Esau. He's the firstborn, and I mentioned before in the ancient Near East, uh, this oral blessing, oral uh, uh, testimony uh, was like a will. It's a, it's a last will and testament. It had legal force. So the, to us, it might sound like, well, it's just words. You know, uh, you know, Isaac thought he was blessing Esau, but he was really blessing Jacob because Jacob put a costume on. Uh, why wouldn't he just change the words to the different son? Well, he couldn't because this is legally uh, binding. And so uh, because of that, Esau wants, uh, has wanted to kill Jacob. And so Jacob had to flee. Uh, he went about 500 miles north uh, and uh, found a wife there, and uh, Laban, his father-in-law, uh, gave him uh, the, the, the wife that he wanted, uh, Rachel, but tricked him after seven years of service, uh, gave him Leah instead, and so then he worked seven more years, so 14 total years of work, uh, had two wives, and then he had two concubines, uh, and then he had to work six more years uh, for the flocks and the herds and all the, all the animals of Laban. So Laban himself was a trickster uh, and tricked the, the great tricker himself. And so it's been 20 years, and now he's making his way back. Now he's going back to his homeland to be with his, uh, to be with his parents uh, and his family and to be in the promised land. And so chapter 33, that's where we pick up. Uh, Jacob lifted up his eyes, right? So he's on the way to the promised land. And, and we saw last Sunday, he knows that Esau, his camp is out in front of him. So he lifts his eyes up and he looks, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, Bilhah and uh, Zilpah. Zilpah. And he put the servants with their children in front, 
Then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he, that is Esau, took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he, that is Jacob, said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkot and built himself a house and made booths, tents, for his livestock. Therefore the name of the place is called Sukkot. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is the land of Canaan on his way from Padanaram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. And all of God's people say to these wonderful words, Amen. Well, we read our passage this morning. Uh, the one word that should stick out in our minds is surprise. Surprise, right? Um, maybe you've had a birthday, uh, a surprise birthday party, and you walk into that room, and, you know, we're all used to that, that sort of noise. Surprise, right? And maybe some, uh, some, some noise makers or some, something to sort of li- uh, liven up the atmosphere. Surprise. Surprise. We all love a surprise. And here we have a really, really amazing surprise uh, in our story, given all that we know about the story of Jacob and Esau, uh, and all the, uh, the, the family drama, the squabbles, the, the war, really, the war uh, that's existed here between these brothers their whole lives, and now these last 20 years. Uh, it's a great and great uh, and, 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 and large surprise. Uh, the surprise for Jacob is that his brother Esau didn't kill him. Maybe you've never heard of the story, and, or maybe you know the story uh, in general, but as we read the, the very details of it, Jacob's doing all this plotting and planning, but then there's Esau running to him, hugging him, kissing him, doesn't even want anything, he just wants to see his brother. Surprise. 
But most of all, our text speaks of the surprising nature of God's grace to sinners. And so may the Holy Spirit open our hearts and open our understanding of our own need of grace, to apply that grace that it come, uh, as it comes to us in Jesus Christ alone. So on the outline, just notice there are three, uh, three points here. Uh, they don't really correspond to any particular passages, but uh, there's sort of three points that come up out of the text, and we'll, we'll see uh, them here. The first one is the not-so-surprising guile of Jacob. Once again, we see his nature, his, uh, his being a grabber of a heel, even out of the womb. Uh, we saw him trick to get, uh, to, to get uh, Esau's birthright to, just for a bowl of stew because Esau was so hungry. We see him put on a costume and, and uh, uh, fake like he was Esau to get, uh, to, to get the last will and testament of Isaac, to get this blessing to be the son of promise. We've seen him be tricked also, as I mentioned by his father-in-law, Nahor, for 20 years. And so the story picks up here in chapter 33 in a very dramatic way. Jacob looks, and he sees his brother. He's uh, uh, up to this point. He's heard that Esau is on his way with 400 men. That's a very ominous feel in the story because uh, Jacob has his wives, his, uh, his, his wives' servants, and all their children, all their animals But Esau has 400 men. Well, what kind of men do you suppose they would be? The contrast between those men and this camp, right? Men of war versus a bunch of kids and women. He looks and he sees his brother Esau fast approaching with 400 men. Esau, 20 years earlier, don't forget, said these words back in chapter 27. that uh, that he, He said that he hated Jacob. And I will kill my brother Jacob. Those are the last words that we've heard in our story from the mouth, from the lips of Esau. And that led him to flee to that realm called Padanaram. And now he comes. The last time we've heard him speak, he's hated his brother, he wants to kill him. And now he comes with what Jacob senses is a death squad. They're dead. They're as good as dead. But we see his guile here. We see his methods, his trying to trick once again to deceive his brother Esau. He doesn't know what we just read. He doesn't know what Esau is really going to do. He thinks there's death. And so we see him hatch a plan. And so he groups his wives, uh, these concubines, each with their particular children, and he puts the servant women first and their kids. Why, why would you do that? Here comes Esau this way. And I'm going to put my servant girls with, servant women with, with their sons first. Why? He doesn't care about them. These are his wives, right? You know, let's, they're sort of the, they're cannon fodder, we would say, in our terminology. And then he puts his wives and notice the order of the wives as they're going towards Esau. Which one goes first? There's the two servants first, and then which one? Leah, Leah right? Leah, yeah. Princess, Princess Leah, or is that Leah? <laughs> Why? Because he didn't love her. Which wife does he love? And he worked for seven, 14 years for. Rachel, right? And that pride and joy that... Uh, 
that last son, I mean, we all, dads like, like me who have firstborn son, we take great pride and joy in our firstborn sons. Uh, but then we have, our, we have our last son, okay? We have the middle, right? Uh, I'm a middle child, and so I know what it was like to be the, the middle son. Uh, it was like being the peanut butter uh, that was just smeared on two pieces of bread, right? It was just sort of, you just got to put something in there, right? So that was always Danny. Uh, and so, but then, you know, he has this last son, Joseph, right? His, his little man, uh, and, and he puts them last because he cares about them most. So you can see his own mental state here, his own plan. Uh, but, uh, but it's interesting the way it works. The way as, as, as he in his wisdom is trying to, you know, uh, put some cannon fodder out there in front of himself so that he can scurry away, run away from Esau who wants to kill him. His wife, Leah, goes in front of Rachel. Notice the sons that would have been with her. We know this from the story before where uh, they gave birth to their particular sons. Leah, amongst her sons, would have been Levi and Judah. Why is that important? Amongst Leah's sons were Levi and Judah. Are those important tribes in Israel? Who's the tribe of Levi going to become? The priests? And who's the, from whom is the, uh, uh, the, the tribe of Judah going to come? The Lord Jesus Christ, right? The Messiah, the kings of Israel. So in his mind, he's going to put this wife that he doesn't love as much. He just had to take her because she was in the, in the tent that night. Uh, and, but yet she has her sons, Levi and Judah, amongst uh, that little sort of cannon fodder, as it were. Uh, closer to the front uh, were the servants, uh, the, his wives' servants, Bilhah and Zilpah her, uh, and her sons. And at the head of that column was Jacob himself. It reminds us of what, uh, what, what, what the prophet Isaiah once said to the people of God that my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. The Lord was saying there that the way that he works redemption is is in a way that's beyond our imagination, beyond our conception, beyond the way that we would have planned it out. Paul picks up on that later on in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, when he tells us that God did not choose the mighty and the strong and the wise and the great of the world. He chose the low things, the despised kinds of peoples. The world sees the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, The Greek sees it as foolishness and the Jews saw it as powerlessness. But for those who believe, it's the power of God and it's the wisdom of God. In God's wisdom, he has sent his son to die for sinners like us doesn't seem very wise, doesn't seem very powerful to us, but it's God's ways, it's God's methods, uh, it's God's uh, plans that are above and beyond ours. And we can see something of that here because Jacob is plotting and planning in his own human wisdom. His guile, his plotting is not according to God's wisdom. He sought to save his son Joseph. We see how Jacob learned from his father the sin of favoritism. We see the, the, we've seen already the, the intra-family 
uh, drama and squabbles that you and I know so well. We all, we all know how this works. Uh, but yet in Jacob's wisdom, although he favored his son Joseph, uh, he would have saved his last son, but had his firstborn son, as well as the two sons through whom Israel's priests and kings would come, he would have them die. If things worked out according to his plan. But yet God has a plan, doesn't he? God has a purpose in all this. So his guile is not so, not so surprising, but it's his. His wisdom, his method, his plan, it's his. But God has his own. God has his own. Notice the also surprising grace of Esau. This is, this is the great surprise here, humanly speaking. Where, 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 where we read there, Jacob lifts up his eyes, and, and he sees now what he had previously heard, Esau coming, 400 men, he divides the camp and so forth. Verse 4, but Esau. But Esau. I mean, we're used to, we're used to hearing in the Bible that, that great phrase, but God. But here we have this but Esau. It's a strange, strange thing. It's a surprising thing that we hear. There's an also surprising revelation in our text that Esau ran to meet Jacob. Esau ran and embraced Jacob. Esau ran and kissed his brother, Jacob. Something's happened in these 20 years. Now, on the one hand, we might say, well, you know, like, like all of us, we kind of soften up, you know, in, in our old age. You know, we, we, we go from being very idealistic, uh, maybe college students, and then even as parents, and then I, I guess eventually, you know, once you, once you have four kids, you just kind of, you know, you kind of throw the towel in at that point, right? You know, you have one kid, it's two-on-one defense, and then you have two kids, it's man-to-man defense. Then you got three kids, you got to play zone. You know, you got four kids, you know, it's all over. You know, the fourth kid just can shoot the three-pointer wide open. I'm not even going to try, you know, to use a basketball ter- uh, analogy. But uh, uh, here, here in this amazing story is something different about Esau. Something's happened to him. Is it just, humanly speaking, he's gotten older, he's sort of softened up in his old age? He's not trying to kill his brother as he said he was going to. He's not seeking him out with 400 men to put them all to death to annihilate that part of the family. But he seeks him out to embrace him. Don't forget, it's Jacob who left his uh, his father-in-law's house, and he's making his way back down 500 miles or so, back to his promised, uh, to, uh, to the promised land, to his house. And it's Esau that we were told was seeking to find Jacob because he heard that he was coming. Jacob didn't seek this meeting. Esau did. Esau graciously accepts his brother into his arms. And you see that when, 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 when Esau says, you know, what's, what, what's this business that you're giving me? All these kids, all these wives, all these animals, all these servants that have already gone forth in chapter 32. What is this? I'm trying to find some favor with you. And, but Esau embraces him. And, and Jacob acknowledges that, that you've accepted me. You've accepted me. And so the, the but Esau of our story really is, really is but God. We've been seeing all throughout the story of Genesis that there are times and, uh, and places and there are stories. Important events happen in the story of Genesis and God is never described as being there. Is God here? 
what's the great promise that the Lord gave to Jacob? That we've seen it many times throughout. I will be with you. I will be with you. And so Jacob is describing what God has said and what God has done, but God, you know, isn't there in terms of being the actor on the scene, and so we've described this as sometimes the invisible hand. Sometimes God acts behind the scene. And so Esau's actions, but Esau is really, but God. God is doing something here. God has stirred him up and changed his heart, and he's done it because God has a purpose to bring, of course, Jacob and all of his family uh, to bring them through them, to bring the promised people of God, to bring them to Egypt, to bring them out one day uh, in salvation. So he, he, uh, he turns his eyes towards these women and children, uh, Esau does, and, and then comes that moment of truth. Who are these with you? And Jacob says, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. The two servants... Women, their children draw near, they bow down. Leah, her children, they draw near, bow down. Finally, Rachel, Joseph, the same, uh, just as Jacob has done. And Jacob admits his purpose in all this was to find favor in Esau's sight. It was to appease Esau's anger. Esau refuses to take the gifts that Jacob sent, but Jacob insists. Jacob describes seeing Esau as if he had seen the face of God. Did you hear that part of the story? Remember in chapter 32, uh, last Sunday, there was that, that, that really strange event, chapter 32 at verse 22 and following, where Jacob has put his servants and his children on that side of the river, and he stayed the night on this side of the river. He falls asleep, and it, the, the, the sun goes down, and what did he do all night? He had a wrestling match with God. And he said that he had seen the face of God. He had seen the face of God. Face to face, verse 30 of chapter 32. And isn't it amazing that he's just seen God, the, the Son of God, our Lord Jesus, before he's born on this earth, of course. He comes down in some mysterious human form and he wrestles all night. And he says, I've seen God's face in this wrestling match. But now he says to Esau, that when I've seen your face, it's like I've seen the face of God. Is God in our story? Is God in our story? Absolutely. Something has happened, and God is doing something. God is acting. And in fact, he says, you have accepted me. You have accepted me. Is he speaking there of Esau or is he speaking of God? What a picture here of forgiveness and acceptance that God grants to us sinners, us Jacobs. So surprising. Here's Esau, a man who's never showed any inclination to love, to forgiveness, to acceptance. His life was one of brutality. He hunts and he kills and he eats. He never showed any regard for spiritual things. He sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. Yet here he is running to his brother, weeping, forgiving, accepting, embracing. Behind Esau was the Lord. As one of our hymns says, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. That's what we see here. God 
at work, even in Esau, that we normally associate with being this ungodly man. But see something here then, most importantly, as we see the surprising grace of Esau, yet as Jacob says in Esau's face, he sees the face of God. What we see here is the ever so surprising grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. All the Bible speaks of Jesus. Our Lord said that. He told us that in the New Testament. He told the disciples that in the New Testament. He taught them from all the Bible, from the beginning to the end. It's all about him. And so we see that grace that accepts sinners here as well. I want you to see here the grace of Jesus Christ in a story like this in three ways. First of all, the grace of God spares the promised line from death. How do we see the grace of God in our story? He spares the promised line from death. How? Esau was a man who was coming to execute vengeance. I hate my brother. I'm going to kill him. And 20 years later, there he is with 400 ominous men. Yet God, but God. And we've got to ask ourselves, we've got to remember the whole story as, as it's been unfolding to us from Genesis 3, verse 15, that promised that one day a seed of the woman was going to come and crush the serpent's head. And here's the question, from whom would that seed of the woman come? We have, of course, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but now Jacob has all these sons. From whom would that seed of the woman, the promised Savior, come? Now, in, 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 in Jacob's mind, which son does he see as the son through which God was going to bring his promise? Based on who he put in front and who he put on back? Joseph. Is he the promised seed? That seed of the woman would come through the line of Judah. Once again, we see it a, dramatic, a dramatic story in which the rage of the serpent is seeking to bite the seed of the woman's heel, yet we see him crushed. There's no victory here for the devil. This, 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 this man who's been nothing but a, a man of the flesh, as Romans 8 describes him, a sinful man up to this point, who has murder brewing in his heart. The devil's going to use him to crush and to devour, but yet he doesn't. Yet he doesn't. God's immutable, God's invincible promise to send a seed to crush the serpent and to crush our sins stands because Judah is miraculously preserved in our story. Judah is miraculously preserved. You see that here. Again, the guile of, of, of Jacob and the, the human reasoning, the human rationality, the human wisdom, but yet God has a plan here. If it was up to Jacob, Judah would be dead. But no, God. God is why. Sins, bonds, severed. One ancient song said, We are delivered. Christ has bruised the serpent's head. That promise can't be denied. Can't be thwarted. Can't be changed. Can't be morphed. Can't be anything. It must happen. Sins, bonds, severed. We're delivered. Christ has bruised the serpent's head. And so the grace of God spares the promised line from death. Secondly, we see the grace of God in our story, the surprising grace of God in our story, to the whole of Israel as a nation. 
Remember that when Moses was writing Genesis, the Israelites had just been delivered from Egypt. They had just come through the Red Sea on dry land. They had just been assembled around Mount Sinai, and they were described and called by God his people, the kingdom of priests, the holy nation. In hearing this story, in which their forefather Jacob, the cheater, the thief, the liar, the chief of sinners, was forgiven and accepted by his brother Esau because of the work and almighty grace of God, they hear the story of themselves. Let's, let's go ahead in our Bibles, a couple of books, to Deuteronomy chapter 7, uh, briefly. Deuteronomy chapter number 7. These are the kinds of people that were hearing the story of Genesis. Deuteronomy chapter 7 at verse number 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now comes the back pat, right? Good job, Israel. Way to go, right? What does verse 7 say? It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That, that's what that means. The oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. We see the surprising grace of God in Jacob as the forefather of the Israelites, a people that were, were few, a people that were less, a people that were despised. Sinners. It was not because of you that I chose you. It was not because of anything that you had done that I chose you. No, I chose you. Why? What, what does verse 8 say? What does verse 8 say? It's because the Lord loves you. Why did God choose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Remember the story of, of Abraham? I, I mentioned that we read in, uh, when we got to Genesis 12, we looked also in the, in, the, in the Old Testament book of Joshua, where Joshua was describing the household from which Abraham came. Do you remember what kind of household that was? A pagan household, right? They're idol worshippers. So why did God choose Abram, and then he chose Isaac, not Ishmael, and then he chose Jacob and not Esau? Why? Because the Lord loved you. Simple as that. It's as simple as that. Right? He, he chose you to be a treasured possession. And people read that word, of course, chosen, and, and they get into election and predestination. You know, and I can't believe that because, you know, what about this? What about that? It's, a, it's as simple as this. God chooses those whom he wants to choose because he loves. Simple as that. Period. End of story. It's, it's us, the Jacobs, that make it too complicated. Why does God choose anyone? Because he loves. Because he loves. And he chose 
Jacob. He chose the Israelites because he loved them. Not because of what they were, because of what they had done, because he loved them. Simple as that. We see the surprising grace of Jesus Christ here again in a third, in a third way to sinners. The grace of God comes to sinners. The Bible, the whole Bible, it's a very big book, and it, it's just a simple story of God saving sinners. You and I have lied to God. You and I have cheated God. You and I have tried to trick God. You and I have despised God. We are sinners. That's what the Bible means by sinners. We're sinners. We don't love him perfectly as he deserves and desires because we're sinners. And therefore, because we're sinners, we should rightly seek to appease that anger of a just and holy and righteous God Like Jacob, we should try to do something and give something to God to make him love us because we know that we are sinners. That's why Jacob's doing all this. He's guilty. Yet here's the amazing surprise of the story is that in Jesus Christ, God runs to us. The surprise of the gospel is that God runs to us to save us. Sinners. Doesn't doesn't the Apostle Paul say this when he says, while we were yet sinners, Christ did what? Died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Don't miss that. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for sinners. Don't ever forget that. He died for sinners. And in Jesus Christ, God embraces us. In Jesus Christ, it's as if God himself, like like Esau here, weeps for us. In Jesus Christ, God accepts us. That's the gospel surprise. That's what makes the Christian faith unlike any other philosophy or religion. It's because God comes to us to save us despite us. It's as simple as that. How can that be, though? How can that be that, that it goes against all principles uh, of, of human wisdom? It goes against all, you know, uh, that, that, that we know in, in ourselves, in our human minds. Well, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a life of obedience for us who are disobedient, to love God and neighbor because we can't love God and neighbor by nature to die for us who deserve to die, to rise for us because we can't. Jesus Christ has become Jacob for Jacobs like you and me. We who are enemies are now his friends. We who hated him are now loved by him. We who are unholy have been made holy. We were unrighteous, now we are made righteous in Jesus Christ. We ran from him, but he's found us. That's the good news to you this morning. What is the ever so surprising grace of God? I mentioned it already this morning, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, a dark, angry, painful place, that he gave his only son to live in our dark world, to be hated by our anger, to be tormented painfully, so that all who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's how much God loves sinners. What is the ever so surprising grace of God? 
Now to the one who works, Paul once said. Now to the one who works, that is, who tries to achieve acceptance with God by his or her performance, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. That's how it works in life, right? We work and we get paid. But to the one who does not work, listen to this, Romans 4, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. God justifies. That means he, he counts us righteous. He accepts us. He justifies the ungodly. He doesn't justify those who have made themselves clean and those who have made themselves worthy and those who have made themselves holy. He justifies ungodly people. That's the gospel. What is the ever so surprising grace of God? Listen to this. In the gospel story, read this. And as he reclined at table, Jesus that is, as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, to the self-righteous, to those who thought that they could work and earn their salvation, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The grace of God, brothers and sisters and my friends, the grace of God is ever so surprising because it comes unexpectedly to the unexpected. Are you weak today? Are you tired today? Are you sick today? Are you poor today? Are you depressed today? Are you an outcast? Are you, are you a sinner then God's grace is for you. Trust him. Believe in him. Give yourself to this God who runs to you this morning to embrace you. He runs to you in the gospel of his word. He runs to you in the table of the Lord. Receive it. Be embraced. Be loved. Be forgiven. Let's pray. Our gracious and our great, great God, we thank you for your amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me, like us. We bless you, we praise you that your grace is gracious. There there are no strings attached. There there is no fine print. Uh, There's nothing, Lord, that would try to sneak in at the end to take it all away, to pull out the rug underneath our feet. Your gospel, your grace is gracious. We thank you for that. Help us as humble, humble sinners to come needily to you this morning. And Lord, if anyone here does not know Jesus yet, has not given his or her life to Jesus yet, Lord, would you work powerfully in their hearts. Open up our eyes together to see that we are sinners and we are in need. And Lord, open up our hearts to receive your love and your embrace today. We ask it all in Jesus' name, and all of God's people say, amen. Uh, We're going to sing together in response.